Hello, welcome back to Labor for Truth. Uh, today I wanted to address an interesting development that I recently ran into when it comes to basically the whole conversation between theology and politics. Um, whenever I first became a Christian, I started listening to um, guys like Matt Chandler and John Piper and, you know, John MacArthur, a lot of the major guys everybody knows. But the main guy I really ended up getting attached to was John Piper. And so I started reading his books. And I remember being in high school and going to the park when I was a kid and just sitting there and reading it and just thinking, man, this is profound, you know, and just not seeing a huge emphasis on emotions in the church that I was saved into. Um, it was more on just the morality and the legalism and, you know, just kind of more about what you do outwardly and not as much about what your motives are and your heart and your spirit. So I found it to be very holistic and deep and, uh, and it really was an amazing motivator, you know, and it really took me out of my nihilism, um, you know, because, I think that was part of it was, um, I'm just doing the backstory real quick before we get into the actual arguments. Um, yeah. So, you know, when I wasn't a Christian, I mentioned this in the other podcast where I give my backstory. I, uh, I was a nihilist, right? So basically I, did, I was a nihilistic atheist. I didn't believe that there was a God. And basically for me, everything was about motive. So I came, I kept asking the question, what's the point? Um, we're just going around doing this or doing that. What's the ultimate point of my life, my life and everyone's life, like humans, like we, we rise up and we, we try and do these things, but what's the point, you know? So, um, I needed a worthy cause, right? Well, you know, Christianity became true, right? Uh, you know, when I started reading the Bible and I started believing it, but in God, became obviously real and you know in my mind he started he existed right but I didn't really think through or flesh out like a like the full emotions of that because before I was basically like my motive or my intentions or uh the technical philosophical term is like the teleology like my purpose right like as a like specifically like as the category of like a human like what is the purpose in general of a human to me before I was like, well, we're just like animals, like there is no purpose, right? And then now I'm like, okay, now we're Christians. So now we have a purpose, like, because God made us, you know, we're like God, but then basically Christian hedonism came in and fleshed that out more deeply to where basically it's like, hey, you know, your purpose is to yes, serve God, yes, to be good, you know, like to try and be righteous. But there's also the other side of it where it's about desiring God, you know, and desiring everything in the world. And so every single thing you do is an enjoyment of God. Um, key texts that I always happen to think about that connect me with this is uh, Colossians three twenty three and 24, I believe. It says, um, for whatever you do, do it with all your heart as if you're working for the Lord, not for man. For the Lord Jesus Christ you serve. And then you have Galatians 1.10. I do not leave the live to please man, but God. And then you have 1 Corinthians 10.31. It says, um, for whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, right? So all these things are like motive-based, right? What is your motive? What is your purpose? As a human and obviously as a Christian, what is your 
you know, and your purpose is to do things maximally, right, with most effort, with most unction, right, as they're working for God, right, and not for man, right, to please God and not man, right, and even the minimum, like the minimalistic things, like whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So there's both the pleasure of God to please God, or right? to please God and to please man, not to please man. And in trying to please God, I am um, glorifying God, right? Solo Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. So, you know, I've been a Christianianist since then. Um, that was probably about 10 years ago, give or take. And um, I've always been a Christian hedonism. I've thought about it more like in the recent years. I haven't thought about it as much. But as of the past couple months, I've been trying to revive it in my spirit because I've just been focusing on other stuff. And so being more emotionally meditative, um, because I'm normally like more of an intellectual guy. Like I'm more like in my head, like what is true you know, what is the truth about this matter, like more research, right? It's not as much the emotions and the motives and all that. But at times, I can kind of get to the point where I become almost like nihilistic again, like accidentally, like I kind of like can fall off, basically fall off the cart of the Christian hope, you might say, temporarily, you know, and I'm just kind of like asking these fundamental questions again. And then I'm like, I'm always brought back to Christian hedonism, you know, desiring God, right? And so recently I came to that, and now I'm more thoroughly thinking through Christianity and libertarianism, right? So then I'm like thinking about Christian libertarianism and Christian hedonism. I'm like, you know what? I'm pretty, I mean, they kind of overlap. And so, um, that's essentially the podcast. This podcast is like that journey. And like trying to bring you through what I've come to discover, you know, and my thoughts on it. And I think that it'll be profound to be able to make this connection because you might be new to Christian hedonism. So, you know, in and of itself, that's a whole nother conversation. But um, assuming that you kind of have some sort of grasp of it and I'll go into I'll go into some quotes to help you understand it. But, you know, yeah, they, they have they definitely have some connectivity and they have a lot in common if you really look at it. And so I'm going to go ahead and dive in this a few quotes. So I'm gonna start from some I have a quote from C.S. Lewis, a few quotes from the book that I read from Piper. And then um, we're going to get into a couple things about self ownership. And then we're going to basically talk about how they overlap. So definitional phase, and then make the connections. So in the the first quote I want to give is a C.S. Lewis quote. This is like, probably the most famous one from the from his book where he argues this um he has some other ones but i don't i I don't want to i don't want to get too much into the definition of christian hedonism i'm gonna try and kind of yeah i'm gonna try and not be i'm not i'm not trying to explain christian hedonism i'm trying to kind of do the next level you know from all right we know what christian hedonism is here's here's how we connect it so the quote is It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory. Um, 
Yeah, so he quotes that basically saying, a lot of times, and this is kind of what I was getting to a minute ago, so a lot of churches and a lot of Christians, they have this kind of almost stoic kind of mindset towards Christianity. They have this mindset towards like basically um, suppress your emotions, suppress, um, you know, your feelings, right? Because, you know, your heart is deceitful of all else, right? So they go to an extreme and basically make you almost like pretend like you don't have any emotions. Like you just, you know, they just like damping you or you might say put a governor on you. Like you just like muzzle your emotions and pretend like you don't have them. And so, you know, um, that's why he says, um, it would, and this is what he's trying to basically debunk. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak, right? So he's debunking that. He's saying people in the church want to pretend like, oh no, you're just desiring all these evil things like sex ambition. Oh yeah. Like you just like have all these, like you just have like a pleasure mindset. You know, you're a hedonist. You just need to like stop desiring things as much. And really he's saying, no, it's actually the opposite. You need to like amp up. You need to turn up the volume on your emotions. You're actually too easily pleased. Um, and so this quote is, every time I think about this quote, it just blows my mind. Like It's so freaking amazing because obviously he puts it into the context of infinite joy, right? So, you know, a quick uh, satisfaction in sex, like pursuing sex, and then it's over with or ambition, right? Like, and then you reach your goal, and then it's over with, right? Which is what I was doing when I was not a Christian. I was pursuing these like really temporary, temporal, finite, like, little, you know, sparks of pleasure. And, you know, I'd, you know, grab them, and then that was over. It was it, you know. Um, but then he's, yeah, he says, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine, that's a key, imagine, what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. <clears throat> so Christian hedonism assumes that we are pleasure seekers. That's, that's kind of what this quote is assuming. We all have pleasure. The only, the only two options are either you're going to do, you're going to suppress your emotions and try and just like try and pretend like you don't have them or you're going to basically grab the bull, the crazy bull of our emotions, our sinful emotions, our idolatrous emotions and try and, you know, tame them, right? Like a wild horse, tame them and send them to the right area, right? Which is going to be for him is going to be the place of infinite joy, which is representing at the holiday at the sea, which is obviously going to be way better than just sitting here playing with mud. Um, all right, so we're going to leave that. So that's like a basic, super simplistic definition of Christian hedonism. If, uh, if you have any more problems with it, you can literally, you can just search Christian hedonism on, uh, online. You can go to desiringgod.org and search it in there. I mean, that's his website. You can, if you've never heard of this before, then, you know, I'm not going to sit here and explain it for you. You can look it up, but, um, so we're going to assume that you understand it from now and going on from now. And we're going to go into some other quotes he brings up. So, um, there's the next quote is going to be, um, from Piper, him defining it himself. And I think this is helpful. I love this. It's really, yeah, I think this is a good summary of it. So it's like, now that we understand what it is, it's like, put it together. Quote, Christian hedonism is a philosophy of life built on the following five convictions. Number one, the longing to be happy is a universal human experience and it is good and not sinful. 
We should never try to deny or resist our longing to be happy as though it were a bad impulse. Instead, we should seek to intensify this longing and nourish it with whatever will provide the deepest and most enduring satisfaction. The deepest and most enduring happiness is found only in God. Not from God, but in God. The happiness we find in God reaches its consummation when it is shared with others in the manifold ways of love. To the extent that we try to abandon the pursuit of our pleasure, we fail to honor God and love people. Or to put it positively, the pursuit of pleasure is a necessary part of all worship and virtue. That is, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. End quote. That end part is actually like, where he kind of did his mic drop whenever he came out with it. So in the Westminster Confession, in the London Baptist Confession, the, 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 or in the Catechism, it says, what is the chief end of man? Basically, what is, like I was saying earlier, what is the purpose of man? Like the, the, the chief end is another way of saying what is the purpose of man? And the answer was, uh, or is, in both the confessions are um, to glorify God and, the key word is and, enjoy him forever. Right. Well, Piper literally just changed one word, but it fundamentally changed everything. Well, I don't say everything, but it changed like the like the dynamic of it. He says the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. So you know, before it was like enjoy, uh, glorify God, and then and then there's a separate thing of enjoying Him. Right. Like they're two different things, but he like basically connected them together. Right. He hitched them on to one another. So. This is Piper basically really essentially commentating on what Lewis is saying. You know, he's saying that he says the longing to be happy is a universal human experience. So that's that's the thing. It is good and not sinful, right? Like the desire in and of itself is not bad. Um, all right. So we'll leave that for now. We'll leave that quote. There's a lot that could be said about that, but we're going to keep going. So he gives a couple more quotes. And I'll kind of run through these just to give you a better feel of it even more. Quote, The pursuit of joy in God is not optional. It is not an extra that a person might grow into after he comes to faith. It is not simply a way to enhance your walk with the Lord. Until your heart has hit upon this pursuit, your faith cannot please God. Um, it is not saving faith. Saving faith is the confidence that you sell all you have and forsake all sinful pleasures. The hidden treasure of holy joy will satisfy your deepest desires. Saving faith is the heartfelt conviction not only that Christ is reliable, but also that he is desirable. It is the confidence that he will come through with his promises and that what he promises is more to be desired than all the world. Um. In quote. So it reminds me of the, the text where he says, uh, you must love me more than your brother, your sister, your mother, your wife, your children, right? It's kind of parallels that in the text where it says that he went and to the field and bought the field for the treasure, right? So the treasure being Christ, obviously. So you have a lot of these different texts where they're actually based on pleasure. And he actually, he actually highlights these texts. He loves these texts when it comes to explaining this. But um yeah, and he talks about, he says right there, until your heart has hit upon this pursuit, your faith cannot please God. So, you know, this is referring to Romans 8, like 1 through 9, where basically you have this this idea of the flesh 
the sinful nature, the non-believing flesh, pre-conversion flesh, versus the spirit. In that context, he's using it in a, in a context of pre-conversion, post-conversion. So Romans 8, 9 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, right? But the verse before that says, those, he says, those in the flesh are hostile towards God. They do not submit to the law of God because they cannot. And then it goes on and says, those in the flesh, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if you're not a Christian, you're not going to desire God. You're not going to love God. Um, you're not going to pursue him with your heart and your spirit. You're not worshiping him. You're not treasuring him, right? And so you're not going to be pleasing to him. So he's basically saying it's not, it's, it's not even, it's not only just, oh yeah, like, you know, once I get more serious about God, I'll become more mature, then I'll start desiring Jesus. He's like, no, it's actually like, if you don't desire Jesus now, like you're not saved. And I would agree with that. That's biblical is that if you get a new heart, if you're regenerated, right? And you have a new spirit, you know, that now is open to God and loves God, you know, yeah. I mean, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when they were had their full spiritual nature still intact and it hadn't been put to death at the fall, they desired God, right? They were pleased with God, right? Like Adam walked with God, right? They were friends. They had a relationship, right? So now as Christians, we're restored to that, like, God-word relationship. Like, that's the whole point of having this spiritual nature. So the next quote is... Um, this is, this is important too. But but to enjoy him, we must know him. Seeing is savoring. If he remains a blurry, vague fog, we may be intrigued for a season, but we will not be stunned with joy, as when the fog clears and you find yourself on the brink of some vast precipice. All right, so he's basically saying, you know, there's the other side of it too, is that you got to know him. So, you know, you have Romans 1 where it talks about how they made a God in their own image. Because they obviously had a false understanding of God. Like fundamentally, he's a different God. So they're worshiping the false God. So that's part of it too, is that you must know the right God to desire the right God. You know, if you, which all of us, none of us have like the perfect definition of who God is, obviously, because we're, we're finite and we, it's, you know, we're biased and we naturally project our own self onto God. But there's a basic amount, like the spirit of God gives you enough understanding and the text is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient to help you know who God is on a, on a, on a sufficient enough level that you can actually desire the true God. In a, in, a, in, a, in a minimalistic sense, like in a sense that only that humans can, right? Um, we obviously don't understand the fullness of God because in order to understand the fullness of God, you would have to be God because you have to be all-knowing. But nonetheless, yes, so that's part of it too is knowing God, who he is, like actually who is it, like basically his attributes, right? Like his character, um, his nature, right? If you don't know who God is, if he's just like this like being that created things, and he like sent his son and died for you. It's like, uh, you know, I don't really know that much about him though. He just kind of like made sure I don't go to hell. It's like, okay, well, you can't really worship that God because you don't really know him. You know, just like a lover. Like, you know, when you first meet somebody, you don't know them at all. You know, you just start. That's why you, that's why they say the first date is an interview. You have to get to know them. It takes, there's just like multiple, there's just hours upon hours of just getting to know who the person is at a basic level. But even people who are together 60 years, you know, they still don't even fully know the other person. you like my grandparents. Um, all right. So the last quote when it comes to Christian hedonism as a kind of like a getting, because I just know that, you know, a lot of people probably haven't heard about it, but then also like refreshing you on it. Like it helps me to be reminded of this because this is not like, this is kind of like 
it's not a normal doctrine that's taught in the church. It's not, you know, like some places know, like love it and know about it. And some people know and love it, but other people don't know about it. Remember, they know about it, but they don't really remember it. You know, just trying to get everybody to the same page so we can have the, the secondary conversation, which we're about to get into in a second. So he says, quote, and just to be clear, all these quotes, of the, well, even the C.S. Lewis one, are all from his book, John Piper's book, Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. Um, I can't promise because a lot of times I forget, but if I remember, I'll put the, uh, I'll put a link to the Amazon. So if you want to buy this book, you can buy it. But yeah, quote, minimizing the importance of transformed feelings makes Christian conversion less supernatural and less radical. You see that? Transformed feelings. It is humanly manageable to make decisions of the will for Christ. No supernatural power is required to pray prayers, sign cards, walk aisles, or even stop sleeping around. Those are good. They just don't prove that anything spiritual has happened. Christian conversion, on the other hand, is a supernatural, supernatural radical thing. The hardest change and the evidence of it is not just new decisions, but new affections, new feelings, end quote. So, you know, he's kind of building on this idea that um, Christianity has an emotional side, you know, uh, and a lot of like conservative, especially reformed churches, you kind of have almost like a de-emphasis on emotions. Like it's, you know, it's a focus on like the will and make a decision and all that. And you also have the Armenian churches that are like, come down, pray a prayer. Oh, you're saved now. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like I talked to my eight-year-old nephew, like, you know, he got baptized. Um, and I'm like, hey, man, uh, getting baptized is not not just like the get out of hell free card. Uh you have to spend the rest of your life living for Jesus, like the rest of your life. Um, you can't spend 10 years living for your life and for Jesus. And then by you're 18 and then you're like, oh, yeah, I don't know. OK, well, then you're not going to heaven like you, you know, you're false. You're a false convert. You're not saved. Like you have to live the rest of your life. You have to live decades upon decades for Jesus. So because you have a transformed heart, you're a new person. Like you can't just like live as if nothing matters. So that's why it says in the end. And the evidence of it is not just new decisions, but new affections, new feelings. So, yeah, Christian hedonism is developing the emotions and the pleasure part of our person. Like, it uh, says it's real. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't say we should suppress it, right? It says that we should actually, like, we shouldn't avoid it, you know? We should um, acknowledge it. And not just pretend like it's not there, right? We shouldn't just be like, oh, yeah, I don't know how I feel, whatever. Like, I just got to, you know, I just got to be good, just dutifully love, right? Like, you know, whatever. No, we need to take hold of our emotions. Our emotions matter to God, right? Um, you know, you see multiple times throughout the Bible where it says you gave, but you gave reluctantly or you gave out of compulsion. You know, you gave, you gave like just to check a box, Um and yeah, that's, 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 God doesn't like that. Like God sees our heart, right? You have people, um, not murdering, but they have hate in their heart, right? They're not committing adultery, but they lust. Okay. So motivation, your, your pleasures, right? You're still ple taking pleasure in evil. So for now, we'll leave that. That gives you a feel for Christian hedonism. It is basically a theology of the emotions. And in particular, it's saying not just that we have emotions, but in particular that we are designed uh, to have our emotions like go towards God himself. 
he's the only being that can like satisfy that. Like basically we have a fire, right? Like all humans have a fire in our, in our, in our spirit that like wants to, wants, wants us to worship. And God like put that in us, like as part of like our, I was thinking like computers or like robots. Like if you put it in us that we would like have like the, like the blinking red light going off saying, Hey, you know, you need to, you need to find something to satisfy your desires. You need to find, you need to find pleasure and happiness and all that. And, you know, God put it in us to desire him. That's the point. So it actually is something that, you know, points back to there being a God and that there is a God. Because why do we desire to be satisfied and have pleasure? Like animals don't have that, right? Like my dog isn't sitting there trying to figure out, you know, his emotions, right? My cat isn't trying to figure out, you know, what's my purpose in life, right? No, they don't. So, um, but, you know, from, a, from an atheistic standpoint, you know, we're just glorified animals. So why do humans have these emotions, right? They're not really going to, they're not really helping us survive. All, I mean, all the other animals survive without the emotions. They just have instinct and they're doing pretty good. So we'll put a tab in that. I'm just trying to help you to get understanding of what it is. Um, all right. So Christian libertarianism, one of like it pretty much. I would say like I, the more I've thought about it, like libertarianism, really the most important like idea or doctrine that's like the most foundational idea is basically self-ownership. And I, I definitely um, I've been thinking about this and in, in I do plan on writing a book on it. I'm, I'm, I'm just I get, I'm like wanting to write so many different books right now. But um, yeah, because basically, if you own yourself, everything else follows from that. So your ability to govern your self-ownership, I mean, self-government, like you get to govern yourself. The non-aggression principle works, like personal property works, right? Because you personal property is an extension of yourself. I own myself. Therefore, what I own is an extension of my ownership of myself, right? Um, you know, I own and therefore, like, I have the negative right to not be harmed, right? Not have somebody, like hit me or shoot me, right? Or rape me, right? I have the right to my body not being harmed because I own myself. And so therefore, and you own yourself. So you are self-owning and self-governing and I am self-owning and self-governing. And so we can enter into a mutual sexual experience or a mutual fight or whatever, a mutual exchange, right? Where we both consent to it because we both respect that each other owns one of themselves, right? But um, if you don't have that, then you have the government coming in and saying, no, you don't own yourself. You don't own the means of your own life. You don't get to decide what you're going to do with your life. Okay, we'll have a gun at your head. Um, You know, you're going to do this or else. Or, hey, you already did something I don't like. So now you're going to be put in a cage, right? So you you don't own yourself. I own you. And I can take your own self-governing and self-your freedom and I can put you in a cage or whatever. So... Even though you haven't done any crime that has a victim, right? Whatever you did was consensual. It might be immoral, but it wasn't. Uh, there was no victim. There was no non-consensual victim that was brought up. So um, all the ideas of libertarianism, all these ideas of limited government and all, you know, um, the people having power over the government, right? All these ideas of libertarianism and classical liberalism, right? These all really have the core foundation in self-ownership. If you, and I'll say another way, if you get rid of self-ownership, libertarianism, um, the arguments against slavery, 
you know, the arguments against the government telling us how to live our lives, right? The arguments of the separation of the church and the state, all these things go away. You don't have that. You can't have that. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Oh, you, you don't own yourself? Okay, well, if you don't own yourself, then somebody else can claim to own you, which is slavery, right? So those are really the only two options. Either you own yourself or somebody else can own you. Those are the only two options. So libertarianism and classical. All right, so let's get into uh, um, the, the, the quotes for, about self-ownership. And uh, sorry if it cut out. I, my, I forgot to turn off my alarm. So if I'm like in the middle of talking, all of a sudden it stopped. That's because basically I was recording and then the alarm went off and then it like stopped my recording. So then now this is actually another recording that like the anchor is going to tie together. So um, yeah, we'll just go ahead and jump into it. I, I went ahead. I mean, I made my argument. You got the idea. Um, self-ownership is the key to our ability to be free at all from other people. Um, all right. So uh, I was reading from the a website called, what is it? American, what is it? Uh, American Institute for Economic Research. So basically, it's like a libertarian think tank, one of the websites that you have out there. And um, there's this article from a guy named John Tucker on there where he talks about basically self-ownership. He brings it into like a show, but the, the latter part where he kind of goes into like the definitions and stuff, This is that's what I really pulled from. So he says... Um, yeah, he says John Locke's second treatise on government, which basically John Locke is like an old school kind of like philosopher. Uh, he has a book that's really famous for him called The Second Treatise on Government. John Locke's second treatise on government makes an elaborate argument concerning private property. And you can agree or disagree with his analysis here. What matters is that this argument begins with a statement he finds self-evident. This is him. This is John Locke. Quote, every man has a property in his own person. This nobody has any right to but himself, which is basically what I just said, right? In quote, you know, that's like, that's pretty much self-ownership, like 101. That, that is the, that's the definition of self-ownership. That's self-evident. Like if you don't have that, then like basically all freedom is unraveled. Like all of the Bill of Rights, the Constitution is unraveled, right? It's literally founded on self ownership. Um, yeah, I mean, the, like uh, the freedom of religion, self, yes, because you own yourself. Therefore, you have the ability to uh, give your own religion to yourself, right? To choose the freedom of mind, as I put my, told my friend. You have the freedom to think what you want to think about reality, right? Your own worldview. And then, you know, the freedom of, to be able to bear arms, right? Well, I own myself. Therefore, I can, I am like basically a government unto myself in a way, right? Like I am my own property. I can defend my own property, aka my own body or my whatever, my house, right? So here's my gun. You're coming to take it or you're coming to harm me. Well, I, you know, you have a gun. So I'm going to be able to equalize myself and be able to defend myself. And, you know, it goes on down the list. Um, but yeah, so he keeps going and he says, the notion of self-ownership is bound up with uh, modernity's understanding of what liberty is all about. The idea of slavery, which for thousands of years was believed to be essential to social order, we now rightly find morally disgusting. 
no person can presume without consent to possess the right to control the body and choices of another person, thus denying him or her the volition that lies at the core of what makes us human, right? And so this is going to be a part of my book is talking about basically like self-ownership and slavery. So slavery, all of slavery is pretending like you don't own yourself, right? Slavery um, rejects self-ownership. It literally says, hey, um, I own you and you don't own yourself or I, you can only own yourself within the, within the parameters of how I allow you to own yourself, right? So, um, yeah, like you said, thousands of years, it was believed to be essential to social order. And I mean, this is a whole side conversation, but the only even reason that um, liber- uh, slavery was even ended, like outside of like the, the Western world, like Europe and America, was because like uh, the British Navy went around. This is uh, in Thomas Sowell's book. Um, he has a whole chapter on basically misconceptions about slavery, but basically... British people actually took a large portion of their navy and just like went and enforced like anti-slavery measures. They basically forced the Arabs and the Africans to not do slavery, like in the uh, mid 1800s, late 1800s. They came in and said, "Hey, that's not cool. Like they own themselves. Like you can't own somebody else. Like that's not a thing." So, um, but up until then, like up until the British, Europe, America said, "You know what? I think that." I think that, like, how do I say I want to represent myself and I own myself and I want ta- I don't want taxation without representation, but yet I own somebody else. Like, I started to see the inconsistency there. And so then, obviously, we had the Civil War and, and you had in 1833, the British, you know, making slavery illegal. But, um, yeah, it's like the only reason you're even ever able to end slavery is because self-ownership, a.k.a. libertarianism and its so that's the whole point is that, yeah, uh, slavery would have never ended. We would literally still have slaves in America and in Europe if you didn't have the libertarian or the classical liberal idea that you own yourself. No matter what race you are, no matter what gender you are, no matter how old you are, uh, you don't own yourself. So he continues, I mean, you own yourself. Somebody else can't own you. If they do, they're pretending that they own you. They don't actually own you. He says, um, yeah, and quote, continuing the quote, and quote, and yet we are terrible practitioners of the idea of self-ownership. This is a uh, continuing. This is uh, just to let you know, this is all John. Uh, yeah, John Tucker. Pretty sure. Let me see. Sorry, Jeffrey Tucker. I'm so sorry. Yeah, Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey Tucker is an independent editorial consultant with uh, who served as editorial director for American Institute for Economic Research. He is author of many thousands of articles. So yeah, he's basically like a legitimate source. But um, yeah, sorry, Jeffrey Tucker. My bad. Uh, I don't know why I'm saying John. So Jeffrey Tucker, he's, re- he's writing this article. Um, yeah, so he just is the one that was bringing up slavery and self-ownership. And then, so like, yeah, the next chapter. So, I mean, next paragraph. And yet we are terrible practitioners of the idea of self-ownership. We have built huge states in almost every country that exists and grow based on denying it. They necessarily must. An ideology that proposes to support and expand the states implicitly denies it too. Which he's saying they deny self-ownership. 
That is true whether the ideology is communism, socialism, nationalism, or any other ism that proposes submerged Christian uh, individual rights to the higher claims of the political community. All right, end quote. Yeah, so uh, it, that that paragraph right there is, I mean, I mean that could be books could be written on just that alone, right? Um, I could do I'm probably will do a whole podcast on that in the future. Um, just the inconsistency with people saying, oh, you own yourself, but yet we're going to make the government bigger. Well, the more bigger the government you make, well, the more you're saying, hey, people can't, people aren't competent in using their self-ownership. But even at that, even if somebody's not competent at self-owning themselves, fundamentally, it doesn't matter. You know, because in principle, you can't decide how somebody else pursues happiness, right? Um you know, if somebody wants to be undereducated and, and, you know, not be smart and not be not be really good with their money, be financially illiterate and to be, you know, not be able to read. Right. And to just be, get a minimum wage job and just to live out in their RV down by the lake, you know, in their van or something like that's their own. That's, they, they, they might be a minimalist. They, that might be their happiness, you know. So everyone has to decide for themselves individually what what pursue what they want to pursue for happiness, right? Um, whereas other people want to be billionaires, you know, it's all relative. Each individual person has their own standards for what they want to pursue for happiness, which is why they say we should have the the you know the the whole uh, saying like the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, right? But that's an individual thing. That's not the government can't shouldn't decide for everyone, hundreds of millions of people. That, oh, this is what I think you should. Hey, you voted me in, so let me go ahead and tell you what you should think is the means of pursuit of happiness. No, thank you. That's slavery. So, all right. We got all the definitions out of the way. That was all perfunctory, you know, like just early conversational stuff. So now I want to get into basically the parallels. So, oh, this is where I'm just like, my mind's blown. So I'm one of those, like, I'm like light bulb it's uh from despicable me light bulb uh yeah so here's where i kind of like do a parallelism where i'm like almost like a venn diagram christian hedonism christian libertarianism christian hedonism christian libertarianism uh i say christian hedonism's core assumption is that people are driven by desire pleasure joy desire to be satisfied the pursuit of happiness aka what they perceive or are persuaded will make them maximized in positive emotions right so like that's what he was saying earlier just to, just to prove that point real quick um piper quote says christian hedonism is a philosophy of life built on the following five convictions um, the longing, the longing to be happy is universal human experience, and it is good and not sinful. We should never try to re- deny or resist our longing to be happy, as though the impulse were bad, a bad impulse, as though it were a bad impulse. Sorry. And then he says, instead, we should intensify it. So you know, that's the core of that's. I mean, he's literally saying this is what Christianism, Christian hedonism is. So he's giving the man who created the term, the doctrine. He that's how he defines it. It's the exact same way. Uh, the core assumption is that people are driven by their desires um, and that they're, they're trying to maximize them. So uh, Christian libertarianism, on the other hand, core assumption is that people are doing what best suits their personal situation unless compelled by outside reason or persuasion or they are properly incentivized to abandon a desired path. So 
that last part is is important. Like somebody could be like, hey, you know, I could be like, hey, I'm gonna, um, I'm about to go to the beach, and somebody's like, hey, I'll pay you a thousand dollars to stay here and record this song with me. And they can weigh their option and be like, yeah, I guess I'll I'll go and record the song with you, right? Like I'd rather have a thousand dollars and go to the beach, right? And so this is where I say they're fundamentally the same argument from different angles. And this is where you get, it gets more like from here on out, it's where the profoundness really steps in because both of them assume that you own yourself, right? I mean, the Christianism doesn't talk like this, but doesn't use the words ownership or self-government, but it as it's assumed that, Hey, you are your own willpower, Right. All of your emotions and your pleasures and what you spend your time and your money on, right? Like he says in C.S. Lewis, like sex and ambition, that's all like an outflow or an overflow of your will. Um, and I think the definition that Vody Bauckham, uh, one of my, pretty much my favorite theologian slash pastor, I love that guy. He says his definition of love, it's, it's always been definitional for me on so many levels, but he says love is an act of the will accompanied by emotions that acts on behalf of others, right? So fundamentally, he's not saying love is, oh, feeling, I fell in love, ooh, we, oh, I can't get, you know, he's not like, fell, you fell into something, that's probably not a good idea, right? So you fall, like, into something, and now you're trapped, like, it sounds like you fell in a hole, but nonetheless, I'm not going to get into his, his speech, but, you know, love is an act of the will, right? You get to know somebody, or you get to know an object, and then you say, you know what, I'm, I like this. Yeah, this is, I love this thing. This is enjoyable, right? So that's why, that, like I said earlier, the first date is an interview. You interview the person, and you meet them again, interview, 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 interview. Eventually, you feel like, you know what, there's a crossing point where I'm like, this person, I feel like the act, I feel the will of love towards them. Like, I feel like my will has gone towards, I don't know you, to, uh, to, ah, I think I love you, right? Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotions, right? So, but the whole point is that the key is the will. The will, yes, the will is driven by the reasoning faculty. So really, if you want to add another part is, uh, love is, you know, governed by reason or whatever, thinking, and then it comes out in an act of the will, right that has is accompanied by emotions so the willpower is governed by your your reason right but the point is is that your primary thing that allows you to do anything like right now why am i doing this well because i you know because i choose to my willpower says to do it and then what comes along with that is my emotions but i'm not driven by my emotions right um or you ought not to be so the you know you shouldn't just like willy nilly just be like, oh, but even that, even being in emotional state, even being like, oh, I want to do this because I feel a certain way. It's still an act of the will, right? I'm still choosing to allow my emotions to govern what I'm going to do. So um, Christianism says that, hey, no, like you're going to have desires and that plays a role in like your decisions. Like, obviously, I mean, sex is huge. Everybody, you know, as they say, sex, everything's about sex. And then sex itself is about power, right? 
You know, I mean, every single day people are married, they have sex. So every single day, millions of people are having sex outside of a marriage, right? So, you know, I mean, you got sex sells, porn, you got sex in movies, you got sex everywhere. Everybody's talking about sex, not all the time, but it definitely is a huge part of the modern culture, you know? So that's a pleasure thing, right? That's an emotional thing. Sex is very emotional. Um, but yeah, so Christian hedonism and Christian libertarianism both say, hey, you're the main person that is making the choices for you. They both agree on that, right? Like I said, Christian hedonism's core assumption is that people are driven, 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 right? They're de- what, what, what leads them, right, is a desire for happiness, the pursuit of happiness. And then Christian libertarianism's core assumption is that people are doing what best suits their personal situation, right? So they're both still doing the exact same thing. Right. And really Christian without Christian hedonism, you don't you know, Christian libertarianism doesn't really work. They kind of go hand in hand in the same way that liberty and virtue go together. Um, so. I'm going to break that down a little bit more. What I mean by they're the same thing from different angles. Christian hedonism is persuasively trying to convince you that God is good and all pleasure can be experienced through him. Instead of obeying out of duty, legalistically, pharisaically, instead, because someone else, or because, sorry, instead of obeying out of duty, legalistically, pharisaically, because someone outside of you is trying to force you to stop sinning, um, yeah, so basically, uh, Christian hedonism says you should want to do something from your own pleasure, from your own act of your own will, from your own reason, not just because somebody comes to you and is like, hey, don't you do that. And you're just like, I guess I will. Right? Like, that's stupid. That's not honoring to God. Right? Like I said in those texts, um, even Galatians 1.10, right? Do, like, he, he, this is like in the context of Peter wanting to be friends with the Jews. Right? He's trying to pick them over pleasing God, which is like, you know, loving and like living out life with the Gentiles. Right? The Jews show up and he goes back to his legalistic, moralistic, man-centered religion, you know, of the Pharisees, right, of the Jews. Um, and so, and basically, he lives, he's, he's going back to living to please man instead of God, right? He's losing perspective. And so, you know, Christianism is in the same spirit. Like, you live to please God, but you live to please God because you know God. Well, how do you know God? Because you have been just supernaturally regenerated with new affections and new desires, right, as he says, and so because you have these new desires and new affections, now you desire God and you actually amplify your emotions because now you're not hanging out at the day at the, you're not doing a day on the mud anymore. You're not in a non-converted state where you're just like, all you have is just hanging out in the trashy mud and just, that's all the only option you have. Now you have a day at the beach being offered, AKA infinite joy, right? So now you're compelled by the love of God and the goodness of God and who God is in and of himself. As uh, one of Piper's other books that kind of fleshes this out more, it says the name of the book is called God is the Gospel. And really what it comes down to is um, the point of us getting saved is so that we have a relationship with God, not so that we can get all of his promises or all the goodies. You know, God's not a means to a material, physical end. Yes, those are important. We can still enjoy God through those things, but we didn't get saved for those things, right? Which obviously is rejecting in large part the prosperity gospel that I would do something good for God and God formulaically would give me an outcome of prosperity, health, and wealth, right? No, it's not the point of salvation. The point of salvation is to 
get the groom, right? You know, Ephesians 5 talks about how in Revelation 22 or 20, basically, uh, well, it's 22. We, we, and we, the, all of this world ends with the culmination of a marriage, right? The marriage of the lamb. You know, we are going to marry Christ. The church marries Christ, right? You have the paradigm of Ephesians 5, us being with the church. That's like, he saves us that relationship with Jesus, right? The father and the son plan out the plan of redemption, the covenant of redemption to come in and save us, right? To redeem us, the damsel in distress. He redeems us from our sinful fallen nature. And he redeems us from the fact that we have the wrath of God abiding on us. Um, John three thirty six. If you obey the son, you have eternal life. If you do not obey the son, the wrath of God abides on you, right? So you, he saves us from the wrath of God. He saves us from our own enslavement to the spiritually to the devil, right? And then he redeems us to be declared righteous, justified. He redeems us to make it to where we're adopted, right? And then he allows us to be able to um, pursue a relationship with our new husband, right? Now we are essentially betrothed to him and we're coming and we're going to spend the rest of eternity with him. A true eternal marriage, right? Um, Mormons want to say, oh yeah, you're going to be able to have this eternal marriage. Well, no thank you. I have Jesus. I can marry Jesus. I don't need, we don't need to marry one another. We all get to marry Jesus, right? I, I'll take that marriage over the Mormon uh, promise or the Islamic promise all day long. You can't be getting married to God himself. Sorry, I'm good. All right, so the other side of it is uh, Christian libertarianism. So Christian libertarianism is trying to convince you to cooperate with your neighbor and uh, through love and respect and to love and respect their need to self-govern their own lives instead of big brothering, which I'm talking about like basically using the government, um, them into submission by force, right? So they're both, you know, um, Christian hedonism primarily refers to those who have, you know, the church, right? Those in the church who are going to be legalistic and pharisaical and who are going to point fingers at you and say, hey, do this out of duty or don't don't care about your emotions. Just do it, right? Just just do it. Don't just suppress your emotions. Your emotions are bad, right? Christian hedonism says, no, don't do it out of duty or guilt or whatever it might be. That's a negative emotion. Don't do it to please man, right? That's the context. The context of that text is, Please, man, the old school, pharisaical, legalistic people don't do it out of pleasing their own notion of what are you doing? We have these rules. Don't do that. Right. That's not honoring to God. You know, that's why it says um, Colossians three goes together with that as it, you know, do this with all your heart as a working for not for man, but for God. You know, for as the Lord Jesus Christ you serve, right? Well, because you know Jesus Christ, you're going to love him and a relationship with him, and you're going to want to serve him well because he's your husband. Um, which I just thought about that. Proverbs 31, thinking about the church being a Proverbs 31 woman. Woo, that's a whole other subject. Got me on a little epiphany right now. Um, wow, okay, yeah, I'm going to unpack that later on. Uh, yeah, so both of them agree, but they're, they come from a different angle. The Christian hedonism comes from the religious church, you know, spiritual, emotional angle, right? On a personal level, right? So the church is a type of authority, right? We have accountability to one another. It's not a coercive authority, but it's a, it's like it's authority of, it's like as a community, there's people in charge, there's people who are guardians over our souls, right? Um, you know, you have church discipline, you have uh, Paul saying, purge even one from among you in 1 Corinthians 5, right? Which the, the uh, church discipline text is Matthew 18, right? You have this, um, ecosystem of accountability 
right? And God put it in place, right? God made elders, God set up deacons, like God created the church just like he created the government, right? Both of these different spheres are means by which we are accountable, right? And we're held accountable, right? The government is, is ought to hold us, like hold, keep uh, evildoers away from us, right? Uh, Romans 13. So both these spheres have basically those who oversee our lives, you know, in the church, the, the, the pastor's role is not to oversee per se. The main goal of the church is not to oversee, you know, um, evil, stopping evildoers, right? You don't have like a church, like police, right? You have a separate thing called the police, right? You have the government overseen by the police. You have the military, right? These oversee our physical bodies, right? And then the church oversees our spiritual bodies, right? Our spiritual sense. So both of them are important because... Christian hedonism redeems our view of um, and Christianizes or however you might put it, um, our view of the government and the role of how we interact with one another on a political or public level. Right. Um, How do we deal with coercion? How do we deal with immoral things? Right. And you have the government, these governing people in place that oversee you. And then Christian Hedonism has the elders, has the leaders in the churches that you're we're also held accountable to, right? And we're part of that society, right? You have church membership. You join that society. Just like I'm a citizen of America, right? So there's a there's parallels here, right? But they both say they have the same thing. You are your own means of subjectively figuring out your own conscience, right? And you have the freedom of the conscience, right? For Christ to set you free. Um, you know, but obviously don't use your freedom for evil, right? But you have to decide for yourself how you're going to choose to pursue God based on your understanding of who God is. Um, so yeah, they, they're going to, they overlap together. Um, yeah, we'll leave it at that. I wish I had a quote right now from a second ago, um, that I was just thinking about that could be applied to this, but it's fine. That's a whole nother conversation. So I'll keep going. So to put it in another way um, that is more practical, in a Muslim country or a secular, secular communist country, they do not want you to be worshiping or desiring Jesus. They will try and force you to bow to their standard and worship the state in the case of communism or Allah in the case of Islam. The problem is a heart that finds its pleasure and joy in God of the Bible and cannot have their heart be changed by coercion. So the last part is basically like... Um, even like the early church, right? The Romans came to them and said, hey, like, you know, you need to bow to Caesar, right? And it's like, well, I mean, I can pretend, you know? I mean, there were a lot, there's actually a controversy in the early church or some people that basically touted and they churned and they basically said, oh, no, I'll, 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 I won't, I won't, I'll, I'll, what is it? I'll pinch the, you know, whatever. I'll bow to Caesar, right? And there's other people who didn't, and they took them off, and they were persecuted and beaten and all that. And then you had them surviving in the church, and they had to figure out, well, some people who were like, man, I didn't reject Jesus. And other people were like, well, I did. And yeah, Peter, and you're like bringing Peter. Well, Peter rejected Jesus, but he was an apostle, right? So, but nonetheless, it's like, based on my conscience, I'm not able to just like, if the, like for example, right now, the government came to me and said, hey, Tim, you know, you have to give up your desire to think that homosexuality is biblically wrong or... Um, you know, somebody's like biology is what their gender is, not like what they choose to make their gender, right? Like that's that's a lie. That's that's not scientific. That's not reality, right? You can just like make up reality. Um, we can't just live in a pretend world. 
So, you know, they can't, they can, they can come to me and say, you know, bow to me or else, but they can't make my will change, right? Like my will is inside of my body and I obviously have control over it. I have full reign over my own willpower, right? And, and with that comes my emotions and I act out in the real world based on my own conscience, my own worldview and all that. So they can come to me and threaten me by coercion, but I mean, I, I can choose to like, be like, yeah, whatever or not. Um, like, uh, there's a debate. I'll say this real quick. I've been debating in my head. I'm like, well, I want to talk about this or not. There's a talk with R.C. Sproul talking to his, um, which he's like a famous theologian, talking to basically his mentor, John Gerstner. He's trying to do like a devil's advocate thing. And I think that would be fun to get into on here at some point. But um, he talks about how, what if somebody comes to me with a gun? He's about like free will and predestination. And he's like, well, in that moment, yes, your options are limited, but you still are free to choose that I can either take the like bite the like eat the bullet and not reject Christ. If some like you gotta say if somebody comes to you and says reject Christ or I'll shoot you, right? Or um, or reject if you reject Christ and I'll leave I'll leave you alone, right? Well, you still you still have two options, right? So you yeah you're very limited, like either die or reject Christ, right? But you still are making a free choice. Yeah, you're being coerced, but you, nobody's making the choice for you. You're not a robot. The guy's not coming to you and like, like making you make a decision like you're a robot. Like you're still in that moment saying, well, hmm, yeah, I think I'll reject Jesus. Or, hmm, no, nah, I'd rather just die. Thank you. Go ahead and send me to Jesus, right? So um, they can't make your will change. At this point, they can't. I hope they can never get to that point. But yeah, at this point, they are not able to change your will. So both of them, Christian libertarianism and Christian hedonism, respect that you own yourself and that you're your own factory of of, of your own will, which has emotions accompanying it that acts out in the real world, right? But it all comes from the reason that governs, our own reason faculties govern our will, which, like I said, comes out from there. So... Um, to put it to, as an example of this, we know the famous thing from Martin, the famous quote from Martin Luther, whenever, um, the Catholic church has grabbed him and, uh, basically he was a Catholic, uh, monk and he was teaching in their mind, false teaching, which we know was actually biblical Protestant, you know, faithful teaching. But as far as they could tell, it was not, you know, sound in their understanding, and they had him on trial, and essentially he couldn't bow. He was just like, man, I mean, I can't just, that's not what, I mean, you can tell me to recant this, but there's, you know, what am I, I mean, it's a lie. I can't do that. Doesn't. I mean, that would be a lie. I'm not going to lie. Uh, this is not what I think. So he says, I cannot and will not recant anything, for I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God, amen, do not let your hearts be troubled. Which, I think, I don't know for sure, but that reminds me of Jesus, like, do not let your hearts be troubled. Um, when, he, when he talks about, you know, they do not know what they're doing. But, yeah, so, this is, so my summary of all this is that, you know, Christian hedonism is the religious argument for um, 
liber- Christian libertarianism. And Christian libertarian is the Christian libertarianism is the political or the public argument really for and the philosophical argument because you have the self ownership and all that kind of stuff. All that argument allows for Christian hedonism, right? I'm able to be a Christian hedonist because I own myself, because I govern myself, because of the non-aggression principle of somebody shouldn't aggress against me, even if they don't like that I believe in Jesus, right? Um, the, the, the philosophical framework of Christian libertarianism like allows the space for you to be a Christian hedonist, right? For you to pursue pleasure in God himself, Um you know, it allows you to reject, like, secular hedonism, where it's just, like, you know, seeking at sex and ambition and all that, just those things in a way that's not honoring to God, right? And just, like, being libertine and just doing license to whatever you want to do. So, um, Christian hedonism and Christian libertarianism can both agree with Martin Luther. Yeah, for sure, man. Like, you gotta, you, I mean, you gotta do what you, in your own conscience, think is right. Um, you know, Christian hedonism says, yeah, you find your pleasure in God. And so you can't just deny that. And Christian libertarianism says, hey, yeah, man, you own yourself. You govern your life. So even though you're being threatened right now, you can choose to bite the bullet. Like, you know, so that's what I'm saying. They, they overlap in so much. Um, yeah, so I say Christian hedonism would say amen because they know of one's own conscience is all one has. We are pleasure-seeking beings. Thus, we must do what our spirits find to be true and desirable. Christian libertarianism says the exact same thing. So this whole podcast, this whole conversation, and honestly, this might end up being a whole book at some point because this is just profound to me. Um, and I think it'd be profound for others to think through making the connection, but, um, and I think it actually makes a huge case for Christian libertarianism. I think definitely by minimum, it'll be a chapter in my book on Christian libertarianism that I plan on developing, but, um, yeah, I think that arguments like these are very important for, Connecting our theology of the Christian life, which hedonism is about the Christian life and sanctification. Like, how am I going to be more holy? You know, well, you just, you get more holy, not by suppressing your emotions. You get more holy by desiring God. And then by desiring God, you become more like him by default. So, you know, if I desire to be like God, if I desire God, then I'm going to be naturally the Holy Spirit is going to be able to work in me, is going to work in me more and more to what make me want to be like him because I will admire him more and I will understand him more and I will be satisfied in him and I will want to be like him. Um, and then Christian libertarianism says, hey, yeah, like you, nobody else can decide for you how you use your body, how you think, how you use your body, how you use your money, right? Like you, only you can decide how you're going to use your time and everything that's been given to you as a person, right? So that's all I wanted to say about this for now. Um, it's, it's important to realize that 
being able to be free to love God needs is dependent on the Christian libertarian beliefs. In the same way, Christian hedonism is helpful to, to libertarianism because it, it makes good people that cooperate with one another, that serve one another, that are selfless, right? Jesus says, I did not come to be served, but to serve, right? You have Christians that say, he must increase, I must decrease, right? We're going to be more selfless, you know, and the church is going to be way more selfless and more loving if we're if we're totally not just pursuing worldliness and we're more and we're rejecting the day uh the time sorry we're rejecting playing in the mud slums as c.s lewis puts it and we're looking to go enjoy the day at the beach aka infinite joy in god and uh there's a text in the psalms i can't remember what it is right now but it says um this is one of piper's favorite texts I wish I remember right. I think it's Psalm 16. In your pleasures is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So desire God and desire for people to allow people to live their own lives and how they choose. Go and persuade one another. Don't. Use the government to force people to live the life you think they should. That's not the role of the government. They own themselves. Therefore, they get to govern their own lives. Government is only there to stop evildoers.